Welcome, one and all, to Pandora's Dark Carnival. Step right up, ghouls and ghouls, and enter Pandora's topsy-turvy circus. A wild ride through stories of the paranormal, cryptids, legends, and other mysterious things that haunt the landscape. Admission is free, but getting out again may not be so easy. <laughs> This is Pandora. Welcome to my carnival. Past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the spirit known as the Bell Witch. We talked about things that happened within the home, things that happened outside the home. This week, we're going to finish up the story somewhat and talk about the only case in the United States documented where death was caused by a spirit. And as I make that statement, I'm fairly certain that that's still the case. But, you know, maybe there's another one. If there is another one that you've heard of, you can find me on social media, at SookieVamp. You can also email the Dark Carnival at PandorasDarkCarnival at gmail.com. Those are the two best ways to get in touch with me. And if you've got more information along that subject line, please do feel free to give me a shout out, give me a share. Give me a follow on Twitter. I try to post some good content, and that's, again, at SookieVamp. And the email for the show is pandorasdarkcarnival at gmail.com. So, so far, as I've said, we've talked about things that happened within the home, and we talked about things that happened outside the home. The basis for the information we've discussed has been the authenticated history of the famous Bell Witch, which was published by Martin Van Buren Ingram in 1894, also, The Bell Witch Mysterious Spirit by Charles Bailey Bell, 1934. And then these works combined along with some other texts, The Bell Witch Anthology, The Essential Texts of America's Most Famous Ghost Story. That was put out by Harriet Parks Miller and edited by Nick Moretti in 2008. So, let's talk again a little bit about who John Bell was. John Bell was a farmer who was born in 1750 in Edgecombe County, North Carolina. He married Lucy Williams in 1782 when, as we discussed, by all accounts, she was quite young. Now, stories go anywhere from 12 to 14 years old. And the reason that her age is so in question is because there isn't a birth certificate, there isn't a birth record, there is just a general family legend. But she was quite young. Now, in 1804, they moved to the Red River Settlement of Robertson County, Tennessee, an area that would eventually become Adams, Tennessee. John Bell became an elder of the Red River Baptist Church and would eventually be excommunicated from the same church. And this is according to minutes of church proceedings that this was due to an accusation of usury in a business transaction, not in relation to the activities attributed to the Spirit, which began around 1817. Now, as I said, the minutes of the church congregation at the time indicate he was excommunicated because of usury in a business transaction. That's been verified. That's been researched. So, you know, this was a time in the United States when the concept of American spiritualism was in its early forming stages. And the Methodist Church had embarked on their glorious revival of the spirit. They were holding giant tent revival meetings that literally lasted for days on end in the southern United States and in this area where the Bells were living. 
People from all the area churches, including the Red River Baptist Church, attended these tent meetings with the goal of being moved by the Spirit. So they literally wanted to experience contact with, I guess, what they thought of as the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of them, you know, wanted just to experience quote-unquote Spirit. But it's not likely that these folks would have looked harshly upon the haunting from a religious standpoint. I don't think that there would have been too many people at the time because of the way views were changing when it came to things like quote-unquote spirit. They had progressed a little bit beyond, you know, everything is the devil. And I think that's kind of hard for us to wrap our brains around nowadays because those of us, especially those of us in Gen X like myself, who grew up during the satanic panic when literally everything was demons. You know, we're, it's hard for us to imagine that back in the 19th century, people were doing things like holding seances, playing with Ouija boards, talking to spirits, taking spirit photography, um, alleging to take ectoplasm photography. And this was widely accepted. It was, con it was considered almost a social norm to go to Aunt Petunia's house Saturday night and do a seance. This is what people were doing, and they did not see any sort of religious conflict with it for the most part. There were some holdouts that did say, okay, no, this is, this is bad, this is evil, but it just didn't have the stigma. So we had come around from, you know, the end of the witch trials in the late 1690s to the early part of the... 18th century and then by the night time the time the 19th century rolls around us in the early to mid 1800s you just got a almost a completely different attitude by a lot of people so you know while the baptists the baptists were stricter than the methodists but the baptists were stricter almost gosh i, I sounds it sounds terrible when i say this they were they were stricter almost in a uh control aspect and maybe if you were donating enough money, they looked the other way. Kind of depend on who you were. That's basically what I've been able to, to figure out. So, you know, the fascination of the spirit activity probably outweighed any serious back pushback that Baptist Church would have given directly to John Bell. Now, is it possible the excommunication due to usury was just a cover when in fact they wanted him out because of the spirit? It is possible, you know, we can't count it out. Frankly, we don't know because, as I said, this happened in the early part of the 19th century. None of us were there. So anything that we um, theorize about would be hypothesis. It wouldn't be fact. There'd be no way to prove it as fact because there just isn't a lot on the written record other than he was excommunicated because of usury. So if you want to take it from strictly a scientific standpoint, that's what we have to go on is that that's why he was excommunicated and it had nothing to do with the spirit. Okay. Now I did locate some information that alleges his accuser recanted the accusations of usury against Bell after Bell's death. However, I could not find anything specifically in the church minutes about recanting. I think we can all agree that Bell's later years were likely very bitter due to the excommunication by the church and the antics of the spirit. Uh, the uh, stress of the uh, poltergeist activity, whatever was happening in his house, whatever crazy family dynamic was going on, whatever, you know, inherent human evil was happening in his household that he was a part of, I'm sure his later years were not 
um, anything less than stressful. John Bell died on December 20th, 1820 at the age of 70. Now that's a really long life for the time period when according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health, the average lifespan for a male in 1820 was between 39 and 49 years. So he lived to be 70, so he was already an anomaly. This didn't happen all the time. Now after what was described as an extended malady, he died and is buried in what documents refer to as the Old Bell Cemetery near Adams, Tennessee, along with his wife and some of their children. As one might expect, the graves were vandalized over the years. There is a replacement stone marking John Bell's grave, which states he is buried near the location of the replacement stone. However, the Bell Cemetery, as it was then, is no longer in existence. There are people who claim to know where it is. However, it is not what you would think of as a, as a freestanding cemetery. And I tried to do a coordinate search because there are some databases out there that actually you can put in um, Civil War Cemetery or Old Family Cemetery or, you know, an old family name, like use your family name. It's like, you know, the Old Smith Cemetery. And they can actually give you the coordinates because those records are maintained. I could not find anything that gave the exact coordinates of the um, Old Bell Cemetery. So why did we say that this was death by the Spirit? Well, around October of 1820, John Bell Sr. was alleged to have had some sort of medical episode while walking on his property. Not known what that is, but something happened. After that, his declining health and numerous seizures confined him to the house, where it is alleged that the Spirit, quote-unquote, continuously removed his shoes when he tried to walk and slapped his face. So just in general terrorized him. Now, we need to go back and remember that we had poltergeist activity here, and it's my opinion there was another, maybe even two other types of activity that were happening here. So the slapping that could be considered poltergeist activity, the shoes being removed, I mean, I kept going to, he was just losing his shoes, okay? He's, he's sick, he's infirmed, he's older, He's not able to take care of himself. A lot is a lot of what I got from that. I don't doubt he was being terrorized by the poltergeist because of, as we've discussed, the family dynamic that was going on in that particular home was not the best. Now, it is alleged that during this time when he was, uh, had fallen ill and toward the end of his life, it's alleged that the spirit's shrill voice was heard all over the farm cursing and chastising Old Jack Bell. Now, Old Jack was the name that the spirit consistently used to refer to John Bell Sr. On December 20th, 1820, John Bell Sr. is said to have died after slipping into a coma. Accounts state that he was in that coma-like state for about a day before passing away. Now, here's where this weird story gets even crazier. Following his death, a vial of unidentified liquid was found in the cupboard of the family home. Some stories say the vial was on the bedside table. So you're either going to hear people say it was found in the, oh, what's this weird bottle in the cupboard? Or they went to John Bell's bedside and, oh my gosh, what is this crazy vial of liquid that's on the bedside table? However, stories agree that, unsure of its origin, John Bell Jr. gave some of the contents of the vial to a cat. The cat allegedly jumped up in midair, 
rolled over in midair and was dead by the time it hit the floor. The spirit's response to all this was said to have been swift. In fact, the spirit is said to have joyfully exclaimed, I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night, which fixed him. Well, I guess you could say, yeah, it did fix him. He's dead. After this, John Bell Jr. threw the vial into the fireplace. The vial then burst into bluish flames, which shot up the chimney and outside the house. Now, remember last week, I believe it was, we talked about Loftus Hall, where the when the devil was, quote-unquote, alleged devil. Now, when I use devil, I'm not talking about the Christian devil or whatever devil. When I say devil, I'm talking about they thought the devil was in their house as they saw the devil, okay? Anyway, um, if you, you know, if you remember, the alleged devil burst into flames when he was discovered and shot up the top three floors and out the roof of the castle. Well, now here we have, you know, in roughly, at least within, within 50 years, I believe, of each other, you have another allegation where, you know, the vial was thrown into the into the into the fireplace and then it burst into flames and shot up out the roof so there are similarities to a lot of these legends that are taking place in all parts of the world at the same time now john bell's funeral was one of the largest ever held in robertson county tennessee not because he was particularly well liked but literally because people wanted to see what the spirit was going to do next and i guess they figured since this spirit had terrorized this man most of his adult life, certainly since moving to Tennessee, that there was going to be something that was going to happen at the funeral. So it was kind of like a sideshow. Everybody wanted to go. Um, so people wanted to see if the spirit would make the appearance. According to legend, as family and friends left the graveyard, the spirit could indeed be heard laughing and singing a song about brandy. The singing didn't stop until the last person had left the gravesite. After John Bell's death, the entity's presence was almost non-existent with the exception of the occurrence on the river we discussed in episode four that resulted in the end of Betsy Bell's engagement to Joshua Gardner. Now, it seems as though with John Bell's death, maybe the spirit realized its purpose, or if you believe the allegations of abuse that John Bell was abusing his daughter Betsy, well, then the poltergeist activity... I would think it'd be logical that that would fall off if the kid's not being mistreated anymore. That if, that if that activity is dying off, if the anger and resentment might be dying off, then that could explain why the activity abated over time. Um, obviously, you're not going to get over some trauma like that overnight, but if it's not continuing to happen to you, then some of the anger is very likely going to start to dissipate. So, you know, we do have to consider that the decline in activity, um, yes, it's certainly attributed to John Bell's death because once he was dead, he was no longer mistreating his kids, so then there wasn't as much poltergeist activity. Now, regardless, the story goes that in April 1821, the spirit spoke to Lucy Bell saying it was leaving and would return again for a visit in seven years. Now, something I think that a lot of theories about this family and the dynamic miss is, wouldn't you think that Lucy Bell would have been angry too about everything that was going on? She could have just been angry about the fact that she was married to this man at the age of 12 and never got to live a life. Maybe when he died, 
She was, in fact, relieved he was dead. She inherited the property. She was pretty well set then after that for life, but she didn't have to deal with him anymore. So maybe she was relieved and maybe that's why the poltergeist activity stopped. But according to Lucy Bell, the spirit told her it was leaving and that it would return again in seven years for a visit. It's said that in 1828, the entity did return. Most of the activity at that time focused on John Bell Jr. It was not seen to be violent. Remember, the spirit was said to have been quite friendly to two people, Lucy Bell and John Bell Jr. So if he's friendly with them and it comes back, then there's no violence. And upon its return, the spirit allegedly discussed with John Bell Jr. things such as the origin of life, Christianity, and the need for a mass spiritual awakening. The spirit also gave what would have become accurate predictions of the American Civil War, World War I, and World War II. Before the spirit departed once more, it promised to return in 107 years. Why 107? I don't know. That's an odd number. In 1935, when it would visit with the most direct descendant of John Bell Sr. Okay, now let's back up a little bit. So we're right in the time of the tent revivals and preachers are starting to make money from the tent revivals. And so you're here in what would become Adams, Tennessee and the spirit comes back and it says, oh yes, everyone needs a great spiritual awakening. I would absolutely love, and I am going to look into this, to research whether or not John Bell Jr. was ever a traveling preacher. Because I find it interesting that when the Spirit comes back, you know, when she was here before, she's, she's preaching sermons, she's telling jokes, she's talking about literally everything under the sun. But when she comes back, she's very, very uh, ponderous on the origin of life and Christianity and we have to have a mass spiritual awakening. Um, that's very interesting to me that we're going to be that focused. And even into the point of, uh, you know, I guess prophesizing future events. That's really, that stuck out for me. So it's definitely something to look into to see whether or not John Bell Jr. Uh, was ever a traveling preacher. Because that part of the story to me sounds, I'm not going to say that the spirit didn't come back. Um, but I am going to say that perhaps the subject of anything shared by the Spirit may have been tweaked a bit for people who saw an opportunity with things that were going on at the time. So I did look in to see whether or not um, there was spe specific activity that occurred in 107 years around 1935. Now I did find some random statements about frightened Adam's residence, and that was related to the spirit coming back. There were quite a lot of newspaper articles written between 1935 and 1937, mostly via the Tennessean, which is a newspaper out of Nashville, Tennessee, that uh, had a, I think it had a fairly wide distribution at the time. It definitely has wide distribution now. Um, and they talked about the long-awaited return of the witch, WSM Radio in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the was the home of the then Grand Old Opry, um, that was huge in the 30s, uh, broadcast every Saturday night on WSM. So WSM, actually, what's really cool about AM radio is the range that you are able to get if you have enough uh, wattage available for your transmitter. And WSM has one of the highest... Um, 
transmission wattage of many radio stations across, across the country and it broadcasts on the AM dial, you can literally tune it in, in as far away as Chicago, Illinois. So WSM, huge, huge range. And they broadcast a 40-minute radio drama that featured over 40 voice actors and musicians called The Bell Witch of Tennessee. Later, the July issue of Coronet Magazine published an article entitled Bell Witch, America's Number One Ghost Story. About four months after that, on Halloween night, The Return of the Bell Witch was a play that appeared on stage at the Princess Theater, which was formerly located on Church Street in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think that same location today is actually still a movie theater. Um, not sure who owns it, but I think it is still a working movie theater. Bell relatives were not pleased by the renewed attention. So let's, go, let's, let's kind of walk this through here. It's 107 years later, so... Everyone who was involved in the original story is dead. I think uh, Betsy Bell passed away right around 1890, something like that. So this is 1935. So everybody from the original story, dead and buried, gone. So the living relatives, they were not pleased by the renewed attention. I guess they kind of just wanted to forget about it. Let's not talk about that anymore. We don't want to deal with that. Um, that same month that they had the uh, play at the Princess Theater, uh, John Bell Sr.'s, a grandchild of John Bell Sr.'s daughter, Betsy, wrote to the Tennessean to ask on behalf of all the relatives that the paper cease publication of, quote-unquote, that rubbish you are publishing. As I said earlier, it's alleged that there was act activity in Adams, Tennessee, that those residents were still, quote-unquote, living in fear of the spirit. However, the only documented eye activity that I could actually locate was the activity in the media. You know, uh, back then, kind of like today, you know, the media is hyping the story and you've got the movie, you've got the play, you've got the radio show, you've got reporters writing articles and just, you know, really whipping up the frenzy. Now, maybe that's how the spirit came back. Maybe she said, you know what, when I come back again, it's going to be because you guys invoke me. Um, so while there was not, I couldn't find any documented activity that said things were flying off the shelves in Adams, Tennessee, but I did find a lot of media activity 107 years later. So I guess we could say that it's actually returned just as promised to the minds of the citizens of the region. Certainly possible. Now, is there, going back to, you know, the whole idea of someone being killed by a spirit, okay? So, is there a medical explanation for John Bell Sr.'s death? You know, there, the idea that John Bell, he probably died of a neurological disorder. He was having seizures. He was having excessive migraines, convulsions, numbness, tingling sensations, fatigue, and weakness. He had been experiencing episodes of twitching in his face and difficulty swallowing for almost a year prior to whatever happened in October of 1820 that confined him to the house. And it got worse with time. So, you know, I don't know. I couldn't find anything that said there was ever any kind of a medical examiner, which I doubt at the time because of the rural location. Um, maybe the town doctor took a look at him, but I doubt anybody was running any tests. I mean, there's certainly, certainly forensic science. Uh, didn't exist as we have it uh, in present day. So, you know, as far as any poisoning or anything like that, nobody knows. Um, he seemed to have something wrong with him. But there again, he was 70 at an age where the average life expectancy was 39 to 49. 
um, depending on your, your situation. And he was a farmer, so, you know, he, I'm not going to say he had a hard life, but he definitely had a physical life. So, you know, anything could have occurred. He could have fallen and hit his head that day in October and could have suffered, you know, effects from that. But, um, so he was, he was not in great health and he had a lot of problems. And, you know, when I see the notes about the tingling sensations, the numbness, the fatigue, the weakness, and the difficulty swallowing, that either makes me think of possible stroke and paralysis or, you know, maybe he had throat cancer and that's why he couldn't swallow. You know, we just don't know. But let's look at, can a spirit move a ball and poison someone? Well, I think that depends on what you what your personal belief is about paranormal activity. Now, because we have access to so much better equipment now, people are capturing things moving on film. Doors, you know, toys rolling across the floor, um, different things are occurring on camera that allege are moved by a ghost. But how much energy would a ghost or a spirit have to have to actually pick up a vial and pour it down someone's throat? That's something I'd like to see because I'm not entirely sure that that's something that a quote-unquote spirit could do. Now, is that something that an ultra-terrestrial could do? Absolutely. An ultra-terrestrial isn't a spirit. An ultra-terrestrial is actually a tangible being, something that actually would be able to pick up something. And as I have said, I firmly believe that we had at least two, possibly three different types of activity going on. So if this was a, a spirit, quote-unquote ultra-terrestrial spirit, something that had once, that was, you know, native to Earth that just wasn't human, but it also wasn't a ghost, but it had never been human, that, potentially, I could see, okay, if this was an ultra-terrestrial, if this being existed, and if this being was messing around with the Bell family and didn't like John Bell and didn't like what he saw happening in the Bell home, he or she, I keep, I keep, I, I, you'll, you'll find that I'm going to default to he, just, I don't know, it's just my nature, but just because I say he doesn't mean it couldn't be she, and I'm not ascribing gender to the ultra-terrestrial, that's just how I talk, kids, so there you go. Anyway, um, so there is that possibility that we had a situation where this was a being, never been human, picked up the vial, poured it down his throat, killed him. Could a spirit have possessed a human host? And the human host killed John Bell Sr. I think that's probably the more likely explanation. I mean, if you want me to be completely, brutally honest here, I think that this was probably a cover-up of an intentional act. I think that someone obtained poison, that someone either being Lucy Bell, possibly Betsy Bell, potentially John Bell Jr., and just said, okay, enough of all this, enough of this family being miserable, taking matters into my own hands, and oh, gee, there's all this activity going on. We can just blame the spirit. There you go. 
I think that we have to really consider that possibility. Because fact is, remember the time. Who found him? The family. It wasn't a neighbor. It wasn't the police making a welfare check. The family. And they got to, they got to make their own story. And who's going to question them? You know, it's just, it just would not have happened at the time. Um, the, move forward a little bit with me in the 19th century. Let's move forward to the end of the 19th century. Now, here's the thing. So if we go into the end of the 19th century, there was also um, the story of Lizzie Borden. Now, Lizzie Borden was accused of killing her father and her stepmother, okay? So when they were found murdered, the police did come in and they did do things like autopsies and they accused her of buying poison, but that's because there was evidence. So at the time, um, there was more of an investigation. So it's entirely possible that, as with the Lizzie Borden case, she got off, by the way, um, as with the Lizzie Borden case, you had a situation where this was um, patricide. This was a child, or possibly the wife, killing um, another member of the family. And I think that that's something that we definitely have to look at as a possibility in this situation. And I think truly more than likely, you know, you always want to, when you're investigating paranormal activity, you always want to be sure that you completely rule out any mundane activity from being to blame for what has occurred. And I really think as a paranormal researcher, it's important to acknowledge the fact that this literally was a situation where somebody in the family killed the man. I just fully think that. I think, you know, is it possible that it was an ultra-terrestrial that poisoned the guy? That's definitely possible. The fact is, we don't know. But I think, you know, if I really sit down and look at the whole of everything that's been alleged to have happened at the time, um, I think it's really hard not to come to the conclusion that he was probably killed by a member of his own family. And it could have been just a situation where they didn't want to see him in pain anymore and they killed him, but I don't think, given the obvious um, severity of that poison based on the stories of what happened afterwards, it's kind of hard for me to believe that they would just intentionally give somebody something like that. Although, again, going to Lizzie Borden, um, in the later part of the 19th century, she's alleged to have bought prussic acid and tried to poison people with it. Maybe. I don't know. Hard to say. But something else, I think, to um, bring this kind of a full circle, something I wanted to talk about really quickly, um, was the community's role in all of this activity. Now, remember I said earlier that I feel like it was at least two, maybe three types of activity that were being experienced during this time. The poltergeist activity, I believe there may have been ultra-terrestrial activity, and I also think that an egregore may have been created at some point. Now, what is an egregore? An egregore essentially is a thought form. What the hell's a thought form? Well, <laughs> look at it this way, and this is probably the easiest way to describe an egregore. I think most of us have seen Ghostbusters, right? Okay, Ghostbusters. At the end of the first Ghostbusters, the Gozer the Gozerian 
tells the Ghostbusters to choose their champion. And he tells them, you know, whatever they think of, that's the form that the Destructor will take. So Egon tells everybody, okay, clear, clear your minds, clear your minds, clear your minds. But Ray thinks of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. So la-di-da, la-di-dee, the Destructor takes the form of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man because that's what Ray thought of. And that's a really simple, it's a very simplified example, but that's exactly what an egregore is. An egregore is created by the belief of many people. Think about, I guess a good way to describe it is um, the belief in the Christian God or, or the Christian form of Jesus. You know, you have people, you know, all these people on a Sunday or a Sunday night or a Wednesday or whatever day of the week they get together, and they have created this image of God in their minds so that that is what they think of is God. So in a sense, they've given life to this idea, and this idea has started to uh, act on its own almost. Um uh, John Tenney talks about egregores, and he talks about it in a way that I, I really find interesting. He, he talks about, you know, um, as paranormal researchers and paranormal investigators, you know, we go into insane asylums, or we go into an old prison, and we automatically say, oh, it feels evil here, or, or oh, there were bad things here. Well, imagine that you are some sort of being and you are inhabiting this place and every single time someone comes into the building to investigate, they're talking about how evil you are or how dark it feels or how evil it feels. Well, pretty much you eventually just take that on and say, okay, I'm going to be the boogeyman. <laughs> the human mind is a very powerful tool. So, you know, circling back, if we're thinking about the concept of an egregore or the concept of a thought form, you have the activity that started within the bell home. Then you have things like rumor, gossip, the general fascination of the public. Oh, we want to see the spirit activity. And oh, did you hear what the spirit did now? And oh my, well, I saw the spirit and I saw the spirit. And, you know, it becomes almost a uh, public hysteria and they're creating this activity by their own by their own brain power their own thoughts their own thought forms so in effect they are alleging to have experienced this when you know it may or may not i, I wouldn't say may or may not have really happened but would it have happened but for the concentrated focus of the community. You know, we go back to uh, when the spirit was supposed to come back in 1934, 1935. You know, as I said, you don't see a lot of documented activity, but you see a heck of a lot of stuff in the media. So was this a situation where if there was activity, it literally just occurred because so many people were willing it to be so. And I think that's a, that's a really fascinating aspect of the paranormal that I'm happy people are focusing on more these days. People are doing a lot of experiments and a lot of research 
into you know where where's this activity come from and you know when when they say well it's all in your head well that might be an oversimplification because maybe it is all in your head maybe you are giving life to this with your own fear your own thoughts your own desires that are in, in fact creating this this egregore this thought form that eventually with enough people believing in it uh, takes on a mind of its own and you know that's a theme that runs through oh my gosh so many stories so many fairy tales you know if enough people believe Tinkerbell will be alive again or if enough people believe Santa will come every Christmas um, you know just the idea Santa Claus is an egregore I mean really if you think about it Santa Claus is an egregore because so many people believe that Santa exists and people go to great lengths to make it seem as if Santa exists. You'll have people swearing and declaring that they saw Santa, you know. And so it's just a, um, it's an avenue of the paranormal that I feel like we should definitely explore. And I feel like as we uh, talk about the concept of the Bell Witch and the concept of what happened on that farm back in the you know early part of the 19th century i feel like we really owe it to ourselves to explore this idea of what are we creating with our own thoughts and how much of paranormal activity are we responsible for ourselves uh, makes me think of the use of the ouija board you know they always say oh you're moving it you're moving it no, I'm not. I'm not moving it. I'm not moving it at all. But are you? Are you, based on your desire for spirit communication, moving it without realizing it? Um, this is something that we're going to talk about definitely more in depth. Um, I've been fascinated by what the Newkirks have been doing. Uh, they have the Traveling Museum of the Occult and the Paranormal that uh, they're exploring this idea of using a spirit box to communicate with Bigfoot or using a spirit box to communicate with, you know, with aliens. And what the the idea of what they're putting forth is, is basically, you know, there's something out there that's communicating with you and it is molding itself into what you want to hear. So I find that particularly fascinating. The fact that you know, we have these fears and we have these legends that have passed down over time. You know, we have the legends of the Greek gods. We have the legends of ghosts. We have Dracula, the werewolf, aliens, all these things, you know, cryptids, all these things that we are afraid of. They go bump in the night that uh, has been handed down generation after generation. So if there is something out there on another dimensional plane or in another realm of existence, possibly, you know, congruent to our own. If it's saying, if it's figuring out, okay, I can communicate with these creatures. They expect me to be this, so I'm going to be what they expect. I'm going to take on the form of what they're expecting to communicate with. So if I'm in a house that has an alleged haunting and I'm doing an Estes Method session, if there is something out there that's been trying to communicate, it's going to say, oh, okay, well, here's how they want to talk. So I'm going to use this open channel, which essentially that's what a spirit box is. As I've said before, it's an open channel. And I'm going to communicate, but I'm going to communicate in the way that they're expecting so that their mind can handle it. 
So that's what I'm going to explore going forward is, you know, using this legend of the Bell Witch, you know, one of America's oldest and most long-standing ghost stories, spirit stories, story of a haunting, whatever you want to call it, um, to look at, you know, the concept of the egregore, the ultra-terrestrial, and get away from the traditional concept of a ghost because ghosts, I think, I think we're past that. I think that we're honestly past the idea of a ghost-based haunting. I think what we are seeing is hauntings and what the new generation of paranormal researchers and investigators is uncovering for us is that, you know, the idea that, you know, some angry human after they've passed on is tied to a location beyond that i think what we're seeing now is that we're not the only creatures in this universe i don't know that we're the only creatures on this planet and what we are finding is that we're able to communicate with these other worlds these other realms that were unknown to us and learn new things and i think i think it's fascinating and i'm definitely along with the ride i hope you will be as well because i think that as we as we move forward into the next century i'm hoping that we make some breakthroughs with understanding and that we allow ourselves to suspend our disbelief just long enough that we can have a greater understanding of what's happening and what a haunting might be and what those sounds are you know we have this concept of the residual haunting which i do believe i think that um it's entirely possible if enough anger and frustration is surrounding an event that that event might be playing on a loop over time. I think that's entirely possible. I watched um, an episode of a show over the weekend where literally there were uh, things were happening, but it, there was no communication. There was definite, very definite, um, you know, sounds that were occurring. Uh, the sound would occur, it would go maybe 10, you know, 15 minutes, then nothing. And then it would start all over again the next night. But they, they, you know, they tried a spirit box, they tried all different methods of communication. Nothing would communicate, but the sounds were there. So to me, I think that's a really good example of, okay, that might just be residual activity. That's not activity that's going to hurt anyone or harm anyone. I'm sure it would be quite annoying for the people living in the house to have those sounds, you know, happen on a 24-hour or a 48-hour or a weekly loop, but that's not going to harm anyone. Now, you know, I think, and this is just my theory, that a lot of what we see out there that people refer to as demons and growling. That type of activity, if it's not poltergeist activity, I think goes more along the lines of what we've talked about tonight with the ultra-terrestrials and the egregore concept of, you know, creating these thought forms that eventually take, a lot, take on energy of their own and start behaving just as you expect them to. You know, if you want to create a demon in your house and you're determined enough and there is something else, you know, uh, in your realm of existence that takes on those emotions, then yeah, you know, presto changeo, congratulations, you've got a demon in your house. Uh, I think that, you know, 
a Christian idea of a demon is going to be markedly different from the idea of a jinn or the idea of a demon based, you know, from any other religion. Um, you know, the yokai of Japan. Um, you know, every religion, every culture has their demons, and we all see them in different ways. And I, I'm betting if somebody really looked at the data that is gathered from different parts of the world, I would say that probably the paranormal activity that's experienced closely mirrors the legends of that of the particular culture. It wouldn't shock me at all. Um, and I do believe that, you know, the concept of fairies, the concept of... Uh, of, you know, the old gods, things like that, you know, it was brought to this country. I mean, everything, just think about it. Think about everyone who immigrated to this country, where they came from, and then think about the hauntings that you know about, the hauntings that are famous, and the things that have gone on, and what people talk about seeing. And you start to see a correlation in the activity um you know people talk about fairies you know and, and as i said in an earlier episode i think that fairies are probably one of the best examples of an ultra terrestrial you know there are these little creatures um you know they took on the form of goblins in hopkinsville kentucky back in the 50s um and they had other forms throughout history in europe and different parts of the world but the general consensus with these with these creatures is that they're all these tiny we would say tiny little creatures that run around and do mischief and and steal things and just run amok in general so you know there is that there is that um that similarity that runs through all of these stories that makes it just plausible enough to be extremely interesting so this week what i would leave you with is you know, we've talked about, um, can a spirit kill someone? You know what? I don't think so. I think in this instance, we had a lot of activity that was going on. And I think that it was very coincidental that this man passed away or was murdered during the height of this activity. I think the two are congruent, but I do not think one had anything to do with the other. And I'm just going to be completely honest. I mean, I don't think, I think that an ultra-terrestrial probably has better things to do than kill an old man. And the ultra-terrestrial probably knew that his own family was going to take care of that and it didn't have to do so. Um, I do think that the ultra-terrestrial didn't like him very much and certainly enjoyed terrorizing him as much as possible and i also think that whatever this spirit quote-unquote spirit was was highly entertained by all the attention it was getting and i think it thrived on it and i think after a while you know it decided well i want to go somewhere else now and it left and then it came back as it promised then it left but has it ever come back have you been to the bell witch cave have you seen what it's like in the dark would you stay on that farm in the dark? I would. I think it would be fascinating. But then again, as we know, I'm not like everyone else, am I? So until our next episode, ponder what we've talked about. And remember, that thing that goes bump in the night, <laughs> it may be smarter than you think. Sleep tight. This podcast is the original composition of Pandora Blackthorn. 
Music is original compositions by Michael Blackthorne. Executive produced by Pandora Blackthorne and Michael Blackthorne. Subscribe to Pandora's Dark Carnival on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.